minister, Blaise Reculia. Good job, man. God's got him in Austin, Texas, which proves that God still leads you into the wilderness. But we're always glad to have him when he comes back home. Genesis 1, And God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. It is without dispute that the one thing that God, the one purpose that God had in mind when he created man was for man to have dominion on the earth. Now that's not widely accepted throughout the, uh, the church world. But if the Bible means what it says, if the language means what it's interpreted to be, as we read it to you, God's one purpose for man was to have dominion on the earth. He didn't create man because he was lonely. He's God. He can't be lonely. He didn't create man for any other purpose other than to have dominion on the earth. Now, folks, you may, based on some of the Bible teaching or things that we've heard in the past, People may have the idea that man no longer has authority on the earth because he fell. But you need to understand some, uh, understand some things about God. First of all, God's eternal. He never changes. He said himself, I am God, I change not. So if God's original purpose was for man to have dominion on the earth, it's his purpose now. He hadn't changed. Now, if the devil is strong enough to change that, then God's not who the Bible says he is. We have no choice based upon the scripture but to accept the fact that God's got you here to have dominion in your life. That's his purpose. That's his goal. That's the reason he created us. Now I want you to notice something else. Notice it says that God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness. He made man, God made man, to be an exact duplicate of himself. That's what image and likeness means. He made man in his, his own class of being, a spirit being. It's the only thing that he created that has a spirit. And as such, that puts man in God's image. Now remember how these scriptures came to pass. God is dictating to Moses, word for word, the story of creation. He's dictating specifically what he did and how he did it. And God says of himself over and over again, ten times in this first chapter of Genesis, and I said, and I said, and I said, and I said. So when we come to the place in Genesis 1.26 where it says God said, let us make man in our own image. What image has he just revealed himself to be? The one who with created power said over and over and over and over again. I think many of us miss the fact, and it is a fact, I think a lot of people miss the fact that God said 
that man was to operate exactly on the earth in having and exercising dominion, to act exactly like he did when he's just revealed how he did. He's just revealed over and over and over again, and I said, the only reason that this would be possible or make any sense whatsoever is if God wanted man to have dominion by saying, if God wanted man to exercise his dominion on the earth, the dominion that he was created to have and delivered unto him, the exercise of that authority through words. And God said, and God said, and after God made man, breathed himself into mankind, and man became a living soul, it said God looked on everything he created and said it's very good. It's very good. And then he ceased from anything else that he made. Now, folks, there's a lot of things that weren't on the earth when God quit making stuff. There's no sickness or disease. There's no lack. There's no poverty. There's nothing on the face of the earth that can hurt or harm man or operate in some way over his authority. Nothing whatsoever. So whatever came to pass after the fall, sickness and disease and so forth, is not God's doing. It wasn't created by him. And we can't blame him for it. Now we know what happened. We know that man fell. And we know that God's plan was detoured. Or at least it looked that way to us. When God created the world before the fall and put man in the middle of it and put an end to everything he created, we don't usually think in these terms, but I, I think it would help us if we did. There was literally heaven on earth. Things are operating exactly the way God wanted them to be and God made them to be exactly the, the same way here on the earth as he had made them in heaven. So the earth is the kingdom of God. The earth before the fall was the kingdom of God. It was created by God. It was set up by God, ruled by principles that God made. And then he puts one in the middle of this earth, this creation, to exercise dominion. That one who was made in his exact image to operate in the exact same way that he operated, which he just revealed to us through Moses. That is by speaking, speaking words. Now, there's a lot of things that changed after the fall, but none so important as what James tells us. Let me read to you real quickly from James chapter 3. You can turn there if you want to, or you can just wait when I come back to Genesis. James chapter 3, verse 1, he said, My brethren, be not many masters, talking about teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Folks, I'm responsible for everything I say to you in teaching you the word. And if I'm wrong, I will receive a greater judgment from that than you will by having heard it. That's why I don't go out of my way to tell people what they ought to do. Most of the time when people come to me and say, what should I do? I ask them, what do you think? Verse 2, he says, for in many things we offend all. The word offend is the word stumble. 
But if any man offend or stumble not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Notice what, Jesus, what uh, James is saying by the Holy Ghost. He's saying if you can control your tongue, you can control your body. That should be simple enough. He goes on to explain the trouble behind that or with that. He said, behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us. And we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor or the captain listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. Now what he's saying is no matter how big the fire, it all starts with the same little spark. Big fires, little fires, they all start from one spark. And the tongue is a fire. James said, a world of iniquity or sin. So is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. Now, folks, I would submit to you that that's not the way God made the tongue. James is telling us by the Holy Ghost that's how things are now. But that's not the way God made it. He couldn't have looked on the creation and said it's very good if this was the state of the man's tongue. Every kind of beasts and birds and of serpents and of things in the earth and the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Full of deadly poison. Well, the one thing that we can identify, therefore, that did take place in the fall is that man lost control of his tongue. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by that. Every bit of knowledge before the fall, every bit of knowledge that man had, that Adam had gained, and remember the Bible says God came and talked to him in the cool, of, walked and talked with him in the garden in the cool of the day. Every bit of information that Adam has, every, every action that he takes is from his spirit, governed by his spirit or the spirit that God has breathed into it. That's the only source of information he has is spiritual knowledge. The Bible says that when they fell, they recognized that they were naked and ashamed. Well, folks, at the fall, clothes didn't fall off of them. They were naked the whole time. But it's obvious that they weren't conscious of their bodies. There was no self-consciousness before the fall. There was no knowledge. There was no source of knowledge. There was no wisdom. There was no experience that Adam and Eve had in any form whatsoever other than what God had revealed to them and what they had learned through their own experience of operating from their spirit in the earth. Only source of knowledge there was for them was spiritual knowledge. God was the source of everything in their lives. He was indeed their life. But when the fall occurred, the light in man, the light in their spirit, from being joined together with God, that went out. And they saw they were naked, and they were ashamed. So man has now, through his disobedience, man has now changed what God intended for him to always have. God's plan for operating with man in a perfect environment, in a heavenly kingdom, if you'll allow me to say it that way. 
has now changed. Not God's purpose. Now, the one thing that we know that couldn't have happened is that God could not have come down to man after the fall and said, well, now you've messed up. I'll take authority back for the earth. No longer does man have authority here. I'll take that back for myself. And as such, because God had given, literally given authority to man or dominion unto mankind, God would have been precluded from coming down at the temptation and standing off to the side and saying, Satan, you can't tempt them this way. Man had authority. He could do with the earth whatever he wanted to do with it because it was given unto him, whether that was right or wrong or whether it was good or bad. God's not an Indian giver. He couldn't take back authority for the earth. Man had dominion. He's been influenced and he's yielded to the wrong influence. And he's changed what God originally intended for him to have. Or the way that God intended for him to be. But he still has authority. So now what is God going to do to get back involved in man's life? Man has taken himself out of union with God. How's God going to get that back? How is God going to make that work? Well, we know 2,000 years go by, and there are some minor covenants that God makes. He makes a covenant with Noah, for example, regarding the flood. But really, it's 2,000 years later when Abraham comes on the scene that God makes a covenant with him. And he's trying to get involved with man's lives once again. And so here's what he told Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee, here's the promise, I will make of thee a great nation, that's children, and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. What's God doing? He's trying to get involved with man's life again. The thing that disobedience and sin the curse of sin that comes on the earth has separated man from his God. And God initiates something to get back involved. Now, at the very least, we could say that God's covenant with Abraham or his promises to Abraham could be called assisted living. This is the original assisted living program. Because God is promising to Abraham, I'll get involved in your life. I'll help you. I'll be with you. I'll bless you. Well, that would be assisted living, wouldn't it? I know it's not what they use the term to mean today. But that's what God offered Abraham. Well, we know what that resulted in. The next chapter says Abraham was very rich in silver and cattle and gold. And several places, it's attributed to the blessing of God. And that's just exactly what Proverbs says. Proverbs says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Well, God promised to bless Abraham, and it made him rich. But that's not the only thing that that covenant did. Genesis chapter 20, verse 17, I think it is, said that Abraham prayed unto God for Abimelech. And Abimelech was healed, and his wife and his children 
So we also see that the assisted living program that God had in mind involved healing or divine health. But even more than that, it, it included a God that would hear and answer prayer. And that was all part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. That was part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. So Israel lives under that covenant, keeping it as well as they can, but still guilty of breaking the law. And then Jesus comes on the scene. Now we know what God's plan was for Jesus and what his purpose was, and that is to restore man back in union, spiritual union with God. Not just assisted living, but a higher purpose, a higher goal. That man would be reborn and come back in union and fellowship with God. So what does Jesus do? Folks, you remember the story of the rich young ruler? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about this. Mark's account says, it's Mark chapter 10, I believe. It says there was a man that came to Jesus and said, Master or Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know what the, the law says. And he quoted several of the Ten Commandments. He said, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't kill, honor your father and mother. All those have to do with relationships here on the earth. He didn't quote the ones about thou shalt have no other God above me or before me. He didn't quote some of the things that have to do with attitudes and, and actions of the heart. Well, the rich young ruler replies to what Jesus said. He said, all these things I have kept from my youth up. And the Bible says Jesus loved him, looked on him and loved him. He said, there's only one thing you need left to do. Sell what you have and give to the poor so that you can have treasure in heaven. Well, this was too much for the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler went away grieved because he had great possessions. I think a better way to say that is his possessions had him. His heart was in what he had what he possessed. Now let me ask you this. How did the rich young ruler get rich? God's assisted living plan. He's kept the word. He's kept the law. At least the ones that Jesus mentioned to him. Now when Abraham obeyed God, God made him very rich in silver and cattle and gold. When the rich young ruler obeyed God, God seemed to have made him rich too. That's certainly the way he turned out, isn't it? So here's my question. What do you think Jesus' life was here on the earth before he started his ministry? Jesus never broke the law in any form whatsoever. What kind of life did he live? Now, I'm not out here trying to say that Jesus became the richest man on the earth because we don't know. We don't know what the circumstances behind his existence were before he started in his, in his earthly ministry. But there's a story in John chapter 2 that I think gives us a little bit of a hint. In John chapter 2, Jesus has been 
baptized by John in the Jordan River. The Holy Ghost descends on him in bodily shape as a dove. Everybody sees it and hears it. Here's the voice that came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus was led of the Holy Ghost into the wilderness, not to be tempted of the devil, but to prepare himself for the next three years of ministry. While he was there, the devil came to tempt him. And Jesus overcame the temptation of the devil by quoting the word, which shows us he understood something about God's original plan. He understood the exercise of authority through words. He understood what it was like to be in the likeness and image of God. And the Bible says, Luke uh, 4 says this, he returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. Well, in John chapter 2, Jesus is at the wedding in Cana, the marriage feast. And his mother comes to him. This must have been a relative of Jesus. That's the only reason why his mother would have had anything to do with what was going on. And his mother comes to him. Mary comes to him and says, Jesus, we're out of wine. And Jesus responds in a very interesting, almost confusing way. He says, woman, what have I to do with you? My time has not yet come. Now, why would Mary go to Jesus when they were out of wine? She's not asking him to run to the house and get some out of their private stash. <laughs> why go to Jesus? There were others of Jesus' disciples there. She didn't question them about anything. And Jesus, after seemingly sending her away, then takes action. Jesus tells the servants to fill the water pots with water. These water pots were the pots that they used to hold the water to wash people's feet. He said, go fill the water pots with water and then bear it to the governor of the feast. And on the way, it turned into wine. But there's a real important point of this story that I left out. And that is, after Jesus tells Mary, what do I have to do with this? My time has not yet come. Mary turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now tell me something. He's never done a miracle. The Bible says this is the first of his miracles. He's never performed a miracle on behalf of or because of the anointing of the Holy Ghost. He's never performed a miracle for anybody else, or else this wouldn't have been the first one. What in the world would cause Mary to say, whatever he tells you to do, do it? There's only one thing I can come up with that fits. You judge this for yourself. Mary is used to his words meaning something. Mary has to be used to his words doing supernatural things. This has got to be something more. Her relationship and her experience with Jesus growing up has got to be something more than just he's been a good boy. It's got to be something more than just, man, favors all over this kid. It's got to be something more. For her to respond to the servants Whatever he speaks to you, 
whatever he tells you, do that. She's got to be used to seeing his words come to pass. She's got to be accustomed to God's assisted living program, working for Jesus in a supernatural, maybe even a miraculous way. I wouldn't find it hard to believe that Mary is accustomed to seeing miracles take place because of Jesus' words. They couldn't have been miracles for other people because it took the anointing of the Holy Ghost to bring that about. But Jesus was still a part of the covenant of Abraham and he kept it perfectly without fail. That produced supernatural results in other people's lives. Why wouldn't it have with his? Do you see the point? Now turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 7. <clears throat> Here Jesus is now on the earth for the purpose of bringing man back in union with God. Now the verses of scripture I want to read to you and want to focus on are in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the chapter. But I want you to notice that he begins speaking in chapter 5. If you've got a red letter version of the Bible, all but the first two verses of chapter 5, I believe it is, to the end of chapter 7, it's all in red. It's Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And it starts with chapter 5 with the Beatitudes, blessed are those who, over and over again. It goes from there to talk about heart issues. It goes from there to talk about having the right heart toward God. It goes from there to talk about not just don't carry out the actions of stealing or committing adultery, but don't even think it in your heart. It goes into chapter 6 where he tells us how to pray or tells them how to pray. What we know of is the Lord's Prayer. And a part of that prayer is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He defines what the kingdom of God is, where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. And that's exactly the condition that, I, that Adam was born into, where the will of God was done on the earth just like it is in heaven. And it stayed that way until he fell. Now, it's easy for us to think that God made Adam a living soul on Saturday, rested on Sunday, and by Monday afternoon, Adam had messed everything up. But there's some hints in the Bible that indicate that that was not the case. Because shortly after the fall in the story of Cain and Abel, there are a lot of people on the earth. There are cities that exist. Cain talks about the judgment that was due him because he killed his brother Abel. And he talks about, what about the people in the other cities? The vengeance that they'll bring against me. So Adam could have stayed in the Garden of Eden before the fall for a long, long time. Time didn't start being counted until the fall. So we really don't know what the circumstances or the situation is. 
But when Jesus gives us the definition of the kingdom of God, see, this is something that always bothered me. How is it that Jesus sent the 12 out to preach? What do they know? How could the 12 go out? It was a real surprise to me to find out some time ago that Jesus didn't expect his disciples to talk about him being the Messiah. You remember in uh, Matthew chapter 18, I believe it is, or chapter 17, where Jesus comes to the place Caesarea Philippi and he says, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the other prophets. And then he turns around on them and says, and asks them, who do you say I am? And Peter answers from the group, and he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Flesh and blood has not given this to you, but my Father has revealed it to you from heaven. Now, if they're going out preaching, which they had already been commissioned to do, if they're going out in other cities and preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, why is the answer that Peter gives Why does Jesus respond to his answer in such a way? Why wouldn't the disciples say, well, Jesus, we don't understand your question. Of course you're the Messiah. You told us, and that's what we've been preaching. Because they haven't been preaching Jesus as the Messiah. That's not what Jesus sent them out to preach. The Bible says in several places, and I never saw it. Read through it thousands of times. Never saw it. The Bible says that Jesus sent them forth to preach the kingdom of God. The truth that God wants his plan and purpose and his will to be done here on the earth just like it's done in heaven. That's what they went out and preached. And when people believed that and accepted that, they were able to heal the sick just like Jesus did. See, folks, they could not have been expected to preach some theological truth because, number one, they weren't born again. And secondly, the Bible says that Jesus upbraided them for not believing that he would go to the cross and be raised again from the dead on several occasions. That was not some big secret kept from them. But even after he was raised from the dead, he upbraided them for their unbelief for not believing that he, what he had told them about coming back. So here in Matthew chapter 7, As a part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preached about building your house on the rock, being a doer of the word, and therefore overcoming the problems of life. And he concludes, or the chapter concludes with this, beginning in verse 28, Matthew 7, 28. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, The people were astonished at his doctrine. The word doctrine just simply means teaching. Now I want you to notice they're not astonished at him. They're astonished at his doctrine. And here's the scripture that turned everything around for me. Here's the scripture that helped me understand what authority really is. Here's the scripture that explained to me and revealed to me how important authority was and is to us now. It says, they were astonished at his teaching, verse 29, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, I'm reading from the King James. If you are too, you see that that word one, O-N-E, is in italics. 
Now, whenever you find a, a word in the scripture in the New Testament that's in italics, it means the translator has added it to help us understand. Well, in this case, it doesn't help us understand. Or maybe I should say it this way. It doesn't help us understand God. It helps us understand the translators. Because the fact that they added the word one means that they're looking at Jesus as being who they were astonished at. It means they're looking at Jesus and the works that he did. The miracles, the healings, and the signs and wonders. As being able to do those things because he was the Messiah or that he was the Christ. But that's not what this verse says. The Bible says that they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as having authority. And not as the scribes. Now if you look up the word that's translated as. It's a simple word but it means the manner in which something takes place. We might say how. The word having is a word that denotes possession. Or the holding of something. So this could and should be translated this way. For he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. He taught them the manner in which they possess authority and not as the scribes. Folks, Jesus didn't go around telling everybody, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, worship me. He went around telling everybody, this world is not operating the way God wanted it to work. God originally planned and, planned and intended for you to have authority and gave you authority on the earth. You still have that authority to overcome the enemy. That verse of scripture changed everything for me. It changed how I looked at God. It changed how I looked at authority. It changed everything for me. Now, Brother Hagin used to use the example, the illustration, and I think it's a good one. Talking about the difference between authority and power. Jesus said in Luke 10, 19, concerning the 70, after they returned with joy because of the works of God that were done, they said, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And Jesus said, behold, I have beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Talking about Satan being a defeated foe. When he took a third of the angels and rebelled against God, there was not some long protracted war. God thumped him out of heaven. And he fell to the earth as lightning. Well, you know how lightning strikes the earth. It's real slow and gradual and floats down like a feather. No, it hits the ground in a hurry, doesn't it? It leaves you going, wow. That's how Satan fell to the earth. And Jesus said, behold, I give unto you authority. King James says power, but this is the word authority. Behold, I give unto you authority over, uh, to take up serpents and scorpions. And over all the power, that's a, a different word, power. That means dunamis. It means ability. So he says, I give you authority over all the devil's power, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, he says that to people that aren't saved. How could he do that? Because authority was given to mankind. See, man has authority whether he's saved or not. Man was given authority because it was God's original plan. 
So Brother Hagin talked about and used the illustration, the difference between the power and authority. He used it in, um, in connection with law enforcement. He said a policeman can go out in the intersection, hold up his hand and stop traffic in any way or whatever way he wants, no matter what the red light above his head is doing. He can wave you through a red light. He can stop you even if you have the green. Now, he doesn't, there's no policeman alive that has the power, the ability to hold back the traffic. But we stop or we go because we recognize the authority that he has. He's got a badge on his uniform. That badge signifies the power of the state or the local principality, municipality. And so we obey what he says no matter what the light's telling us what to do. We'll disobey the traffic laws to obey what he directs us to do, right? Well, in the town that I grew up in, and there may be other towns that, that uh, used to have these things too, maybe some still do, there was a junior deputy program. And it was intended to familiarize teenagers with law enforcement. Now, I never got involved in it, but I had a friend that did, and they gave him a special shirt, and they gave him this little plastic star, kind of like the old Wild West Sheriff thing, you know, we used to get as kids. And so he had this uniform, or at least a shirt, and he had this badge. Now, if this kid had gone out into the intersection to try to stop or direct traffic, the only thing that would have kept him from getting run over was the courtesy of the drivers that were in the intersection. And I think that's the way some of us think about ourselves when it comes to authority. The Bible says we've been given authority. But somehow or another, the church seems to think we're junior deputies and wouldn't even dare step out into traffic. So we'll stand over on the curb and pray that God will do things that are not within his authority to do. See, if God's given you authority, that means he can't have it himself. Now, do you remember in, in uh, Matthew 28, after the resurrection, Matthew's account is that Jesus, well, let me turn there. Rather than quote it, let me turn there and make sure I get it right. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them or told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power, this is the word authority, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now I want you to notice something, folks. The first thing Jesus said, and according to Matthew's account, the different gospel writers emphasize different parts of it. John talks a lot more about Jesus after his resurrection and his appearance to them than Matthew does, for example. But in Matthew's account, and he was one of the group that was there, his eyewitness account, he identifies that the first and really the foremost thing that Jesus says after his resurrection is about authority. All authority is given unto me. Now, I think a lot of the church just stops reading right there. All authority is given unto me. Well, he's now gone. He's in heaven. And he has the authority. But that's not what this passage is about. When he says all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth, 
Then he says, go ye therefore into all the earth. He's saying, you use the authority on the earth and I'll use it in heaven. Do you know why that's so important? Because only man has authority here on the earth. And when you cease to be on the earth, you stop, you lose your authority. Death is a killer to man's authority. You know as well as I do that you lose a lot of your rights and your privileges when you die. About the only thing I'm aware of that you can still do is vote Democratic. <laughs> Prove me wrong. Now, when you die, you lose your place here on the earth. You lose your position as a man here on the earth. So it no longer applies to you where God gave dominion to man here on the earth. Dominion and authority and the right to operate in that authority. Well, Jesus is in heaven. He doesn't have authority here on the earth. The Bible says that God put everything under his feet. And that the church is the body of Christ. He's the head, we're the body. Well, where are the feet? They're in the body. They're not in the head. So you and I have been given authority here on the earth. You and I have been given authority here on the earth. Now let me go back to Jesus in his earthly ministry, his time here on the earth. You remember in Matthew chapter 8, it tells us about the centurion that came to Jesus. He tells Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. Just speak the word only and my servant will be healed. He said, I'm a man under authority. I know how it works. I say to my servants or those under me, go and they go. They obey everything that I tell them to do. So he says, the centurion says to Jesus, so speak the word only and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marvels at this guy. And he says, I haven't found so great faith, no, not in Israel. The implication is, he expected to find great faith in Israel because they're the ones that understand Abraham's relationship with God. They're the ones that understand the covenant that they have with God. They should have recognized and understood by Abraham's example how to believe God no matter what you see and feel. Well, what kind of faith did Jesus have? Jesus marvels at the centurion's great faith, but what kind of faith did he have? He's the one that talks about in Mark chapter 11, have the faith of God. Well, he's just performed a miracle on the fig tree. He's just cursed it and it dried up overnight. So the kind of faith he had had to be the faith of God or the God kind of faith. What other kind would God have other than the God kind of faith? So Jesus who experienced everything the same way we did, had to learn and develop faith from the Word, just like we do. Just like we do. Well, as such, that fits in, in my opinion, you, again, you judge this for yourself, but that would fit in with Mary's words about Jesus and what he says to do. And it had to be, I, I hope I'm not oversimplifying this, but it had to be 
that Jesus discovers from the word man's authority here on the earth. God's intent for man to have dominion and authority. And to build upon that little by little by little. Because the same thing would be true for him that's true for us. The Bible says line upon line and precept upon precept. Jesus had to grow in faith during his young life. Just like he expects us to. But I don't think many of us do that. Let me give you an example. I'll use myself and something that I'm not real proud of to make the point. When my son was about, oh, 12 years old, he was really into paintball. I spent a fortune on paintball guns. And we'd go, and it was always an all-day affair because everybody else was doing the same thing and these places were so crowded. And so he and I came up with an idea that we'd find somewhere around close to home, just do our own thing. Well, you may remember down Bake Parkway here, not too far, in all the land they used to develop, Baker Ranch, that used to be all wooded area. Well, we got the idea that we'd go out there and have our own paintball war, just him and me. So we did. We got ourselves over into the the wooded area. And it was a great place. It was better than any paintball course anybody's ever made. It was just wonderful. And so we're out there. He goes one direction. I go the other direction. And we're trying to pick each other off. And almost as soon as I got there, he's shooting at me. And I'm running through the woods trying to duck down or something. And I threw my back out. So now I'm laying on the, on the ground. I can't move. I can hardly breathe. I'm hurting from head to toe. I hollered out to Adam. I said, son, I hurt my back. And he starts pelting me. <laughs> I had a pretty good location, so he wasn't really hitting me, but they were coming all around me. He told me later he thought I was just kidding. Trying to gain an advantage on him. But I'm laying there flat on the ground and I start talking to the Lord. I'm in trouble. He's 12, so he can't drive. There's no way this kid, I mean, he's huge now, but he, he was smaller then. But there's no way that this kid's going to be able to get me out of there. I don't know if we had cell phones with us or what the case was, but even if we called for help, it's going to be nearly impossible for somebody to get us out of there. I crossed over three no trespassing signs to get to where we were. <laughs> so I'm in trouble. I'm hurting. Every, if you've had, ever had any back trouble, any disc slipped or anything like that, there's no pain like back pain. Because everything affects it. And so I'm in trouble. And I'm talking to God about it and saying, Lord, I need help. I've told him and explained to him some of the things that I did to you. Adam can't get me out of here. We can't get anybody in here. I'm in trouble. I need help right now. And I was almost panicked. Well, God doesn't talk to you in the middle of panic. I know that. So I know I've got to calm myself now. So I calmed down a minute. Paintballs are whizzing all around me. (laughs) 
I'm having to pray in my mask because there's no way I can take off this mask because he's still after me. So I'm talking to God about it. And all of a sudden, it came to me. I was reminded. The Bible says, speak to the mountain. It does not say, talk to God about the mountain. And I'm talking to God about the mountain. So I calmed myself down, and I spoke to my body, and I said, back, be healed now. And folks, faster than I could snap my fingers, every bit of pain went away, and my back was healed. And I was surprised. (laughs) It's like I kept trying to feel around to, to see where it was. It happened just the way that I said, and I was shocked. Now, folks, I don't claim to know a lot about a lot of things, but I'm pretty sure that's not the way God expects us to be. He doesn't expect us to use our words and then be surprised when they work. And I can't tell you how many times I've thought about that in recent years. That was 10 or 11 years ago, something like that. Maybe a little bit longer. And did I, if I'm honest about it, did I use that as a, as a, a step to get greater understanding about authority in the earth? No. I looked at it like, wow, this is great. I know that's God. But it almost seems like I lucked out. And I'm pretty well convinced that that's not the way it's supposed to be. The Bible talks about growing from faith to faith. Well, what that means is one faith victory to the next faith victory. Now, my reason for that, again, I'm having to be honest. Not like I'm not honest other times. (laughs) But you never know. But if I'm honest about it, I realized that I looked at myself kind of like the junior deputy. And the first thing I did was go to God because he's all powerful. And tried to get him to do what God gave me authority to do here on the earth. There's a lot of prayers that the church prays that God cannot answer. And he doesn't fail to answer because he doesn't love us. It's because since we were given authority, any prayers that we pray that God will use authority fall on deaf ears. He can't use what he's given you. He can't retake authority just because we're not willing to exercise it or we misuse it. God's eternal plan is for you to have authority on the earth. You're the one that has authority in your life. You're the one that has authority when it comes to your health. You're the one that has authority when it comes to possessions, material things. You're the one that has authority. Don't worry. We've got an even better God-assisted living program than they had under the old covenant. But the work is still ours to do. God's work is to watch over his word to perform it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for revealing the truth to us. We thank you, Father, for giving us authority. We recognize that we've misused it so many times because we operate according to our flesh. 
or our mind. And faith is a spiritual force. So, Father, we thank you for what you've done for us, and we ask you to teach us and help us to learn that just like a law enforcement officer has authority on the earth, whether he feels good or bad, whether he feels weak or strong, he has the authority that's been designated and delegated to him. In the same way, Father, we've been delegated authority through the name of Jesus to overcome every evil work. And as we use that authority in our own lives, it gives an example for us to share with others to help them into the kingdom of God and to exercise authority for themselves. So, Father, we declare, not because we feel a certain way, but because your word says so, we declare that we have authority on the earth. We declare that through the life of God given to us through the new birth, we have authority over all of Satan's power. Satan, we command you to take your hands off of our bodies in Jesus' name. Body, be well in Jesus' name. Satan, we break your power over our finances in Jesus' name. This earth was designed and created to produce for us. And we say that because of the life of God within us, it produces supernaturally for each and every one of us. We thank you, Father, that you hear and answer our prayer always. Because we pray according to your word. Lord, we see some things coming from the word relating to the end times. You said, Father, that your glory would be seen and known over all the earth. You said that your glory would cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. Father, get us ready for that. Get us ready through your word so that we can be an example to others to show them your goodness and your great love and your mercy. We therefore declare, Father, that we are strong in you and in the power of your might. Not because we feel like it, but because your word declares it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Do you agree with that prayer? Amen. amen. Well, let's all stand. Don't forget we've got some tables set up in the back. The men's ministry has a table, and Barry and Brenda have one as well. Come on back and be with us tonight at 6 o'clock when Barry will be ministering to us. God bless you. Have a great day, and you're dismissed.